This is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation. Hello, I'm Phil McKinney, and welcome. Um, This is the uh, proverbial Innovator's Garage, where I've worked on technologies and products over my entire career that have resulted in uh, products and technologies used by millions of people worldwide based on my previous career, and where I now help others go from idea to game-changing products and services. At the show, we are all about ideas and creativity and innovations, and we want to encourage you to take the risk with the idea that's rattling around the back of your mind and change the world. So this week, um, I got my uh, box of books as part of uh, being a regular attendee at the TED conference. They come every few months. So if you're not familiar with TED, TED stands for Technology, Education, and Design. The TED conference has been going on for some time. Some of you probably have watched some of the, uh, the, uh, the TED speeches that are online. Uh, TED is an event. They, they limit it based on the size of the venue to about 1,200 people each year. Um, it's really one of the few events each year that I go to where I'm not hosting an event. Um, so it's not about me, you know, standing up and talking or being the, the, the host for a large venue event. But instead, it's just me attending like everybody else. And it's really my opportunity to get recharged. Um, it's easy to kind of get wound up and everything in the day-to-day world, but sometimes you just got to take that break. And invariably, they have absolutely phenomenal speakers at TED, uh, which, like I said, many of them that you can watch online. And there's great discussions at these conferences. And it's, like I said, it's really an opportunity to reset the brain. And this set of books from TED was one by Sir Ken Robinson titled Creative Schools. It's published by Viking. Uh, I'll actually put a link in the show notes if you want to find the book. But back in 2006, Sir Ken gave a TED Talk and the title of the talk was How Schools Kill Creativity. Now, this one TED Talk, it is the most watched TED Talk in the library. And as of last night, when I actually checked it, logged in over at TED to see how many viewers he had, it had 34 million views as of last night. And the basic premise of what Sir Ken talks about is the industrial education model needs to go away. Uh, we've taken out... Um, kind of the, the, the creative sides, the critical thinking skills. And in many uh, educational systems around the world, we've taken out things like art and even music uh, from that element of education. Uh, what Kent really uh, argues for is really creating a highly personalized learning model. It's more about not, remem- not memorizing the facts. Look, we all have our smartphones and our devices, but it's really around creating a personalized level of learning that instills a love for just curiosity and trying things and and learning new things way past your school years. Now, his new book is aimed at being read by educators, parents, and please, policymakers. And I would also argue businesses. We in the business world need to take education much more serious. And it goes beyond simply the uh, the role of our own kids or your, our grandkids going to school. But the, the people that we hire from schools, the people we hire into our businesses, uh, the people we start businesses with, those are the critical resource that's going to take an idea and turn it into reality. Um, and so 
part of uh, Sir Ken's objective for this book is really to get that dialogue going on how we need to transform the education system and really how to prepare that next generation to compete what I call the creative or the innovation economy. Now, any country that does not prepare for this new way of creating wealth and growth will become manufacturers rather than the creators or the inventors. And no country has it locked up. You know, working with the U.S. Department of Education four or five years ago, they tasked me with coming up with ideas on how to innovate K-12 through schools in the United States. That is an incredibly hard problem, and that work is still underway. For the last two weeks, Ira Glass's radio show and podcast, This American Life, had a series on urban education and what it's going to take to transform it. So this educational transformation is hot topic right now and one that we all need to be engaged on. In my case, my wife and I are working with the Rwandan government on transforming education in that little, small, little country in Africa. Now, the way we do this is we invest in for-profit businesses in Rwanda, and then we use the profits to fund local social needs. We average about 75 people a day working in our largest business in Rwanda, which is Lakeside Fish Farm. Um, I'll talk more about what we're doing in Rwanda in, in an upcoming show. The issue is, is skilled workers and local education. It's no different whether I'm hiring engineers here in the United States or I'm hiring people in Rwanda um, who have some expertise and skill in aquaculture and fish farming. In the local school closest to the fish farm, which is in a very poor area of Rwanda, 2,000 kids in the local school, no electricity, no running water, limited sanitation. In fact, two pit latrines for 2,000 kids, averaging 75 kids in a classroom. So we're looking at how we can transform the local educational model, with facilities. Uh, we're building and then we'll hand over a new school to the local uh, government. We're working with curriculum developers. We're actually leveraging a curriculum that's actually being used in Uganda that teaches entrepreneurship and critical thinking skills and hiring staff, finding and recruiting teachers and staff that are motivated and rewarded in different ways. So as we get further into this effort, I'll share the results of that. Um, and if you want to learn more about what we are doing, you can go visit uh, a temporary site that we have right now called donate to pioneer.org. And you can see some of the statistics that we're dealing with um, in Rwanda. Uh, and the challenge here is, is what is it going to take to transform the educational system? And again, it's not just in the U.S., but it's around the world. In my previous life, I got engaged with uh, ministers of education in a number of countries. The, most, uh, the one that I think has made the most progress, I think I've talked about it in previous shows, I know I have in the podcast, was Singapore. Um, years ago, they went through a whole effort to try to transform the educational model. Singapore no longer wanted to be just cheap, low-cost manufacturing but transform their entire economy to this innovative, creative kind of environment. And they've spent the last dozen years or so transforming everything, including the entire K-12 and college educational system, and have done a phenomenal job. So if you are interested in education and want to look at a model that works, take a look at Singapore. Now, there's other countries around the world that are working on this and trying to do this transformation. But let me tell you, it's a lot harder than you think. Um, in the case of the project that I've been working on here in the U.S., 
trying to get local teachers, parents, local administrators, state administrators, federal agencies all to align on what the transformation need is required is unbelievably hard. It's one of the reasons why my wife and I are, are working in Rwanda with their educational model. We can actually see the work done. They're open to new ideas. Um, we're bringing not only our views, but experts in the region from Uganda and from Kenya into Rwanda as part of advisors to the work that we're trying to do there. And we're not building an elite school that's private for expats or only the people with means. This is a model that we want to bring to transform the local village schools. And almost 80% of the population in Rwanda lives in the rural areas. And just to give you another statistic, almost half the population in Rwanda is under the age of 14. That is uh, somewhat of a, of a result of the 1994 genocide there. Uh, but you have a very young, prime population that's in the educational system. And the success of that country and the success of that region is dictated by what we can do there. So that's part of the work that we're doing. And I'm a big believer and passionate about the education. So our guest today is just that person, though, who's doing it and doing it in the U.S. and has done it for quite some time. He's someone who came from an education background who's looking to transform the best way for kids to learn. So stay tuned. Don't go anywhere. If you are looking to learn more about ideas and creativity and innovation, you want to stay up on everything we do here at the show, text the word INNOVATE to 33444. If you're outside the U.S., send an email to INNOVATE at... KillerInnovations.com, and I'll send you the two-hour audio course, Creating Killer Innovations for Free. This will lay you the basic foundation and kind of give you the context of everything that I talk about here in the show, but also allow you to take it and bring it and put it to work for you uh, in your day-to-day -day activities. So again, the guest today and the topic today is really around education and what is it that each of us can do, whether it's for our own kids, nieces and nephews, our grandkids, but we need to make that investment. We need to bring up that educational level to prepare the workers of the future. So stay right there. You want to stay for the rest of the show. Great ideas. I'm Phil McKinney, and you're listening to Kill Innovations on the BizTalk Radio Network. Talk Radio. This is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation. The real difference between an innovator and a wannabe is the doing it part. J.C. Penney, actually whose very first store is just down the street from me here in Colorado, is famous for saying, it is always the start that requires the greatest effort. I can't tell you how many innovators I run into who've got the idea, they've written it down, they're working on the notebook, but it's the hardest thing of just stepping out and actually doing it. I'm Phil McKinney, and you're listening to Kill Innovations. 
Our guest today is Paul Zane Pilzer, who is an economist, an author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, last count, I think something like 11 books, professor, serial entrepreneur, founding six companies, and someone who I got introduced to, who he, we've had long conversations uh, with regards to his interest in education. So, Paul, welcome to the show. Welcome. It's great to be here. Thank you. Hey, Paul, give the listeners kind of the 60-second commercial um, about you. How do you introduce yourself when you run into somebody at a, at a dinner party that you haven't met before? How do you describe yourself? Well, I usually describe myself with the one word I hope that uh, sits on my tombstone one day, and that's a teacher. I teach people things, and everything else seems to fall in to, uh, regarding teaching. And, of course, there's doing and lots of stuff, but ultimately I teach people. Well, I think, you know, if you looked, when I looked back upon your career, you've covered kind of a wide range of activities. You know, you were, you know, an academic, you finished your MBA by the time you were 22. You've been a professor, taught for many, many years. Um, And then you've gone off and you've written a a number of books. So take us back a little bit Um, in your early academic days. You know, what, give us some context. You, You finished your MBA at 22 and then what happened next for you? Um, I generally learned very quickly that whenever I was an unhappy customer, there was a business opportunity. There were probably other unhappy customers. And I could get mad, like most unhappy customers do, or I could get very rich and try to fix the world by trying to develop another business to develop that product. And from that, from healthcare to education, I built built, uh, businesses, some of them even probably a billion and a half market cap now, that really focus on making happy customers. And I, that's what I see as fixing the world. Separately, I like to talk about what I do, promote what I do. That comes down to writing books. I disappear every few years. It seems like I don't think that would, I didn't plan it that way, but I've had very good luck uh, writing 11 books. And then I've spent about a third to half my life in public policy. I had the great fortune of joining the Reagan administration in the 80s, and I've been connected with heads of state, different people, mainly related to the books and being an economist around the world. And again, what I really do for all the people I work with, from CEOs to heads of state, are I teach them something. I can still hear President Reagan, explain this to me. And then you find you really don't know it, so you can explain it to somebody who very innocently will say, explain it. And the ultimate person you want to teach it to is a K-8 student. When you can explain what you do, or what you're trying to do to a five to twelve year old, you understand. <laughs> that actually brings up a, an interesting point. There, I've run into a couple of entrepreneurs out in Silicon Valley who've taken the task of literally hiring kindergarten teachers as an advisor when they're preparing their pitch. And if they can't explain it to a kindergarten teacher um, who who act, creates constantly creating materials for the younger K through twelve process. Um, then once you can achieve that, then you can actually, a VC can actually understand what you're saying. <laughs> I don't know what that says about venture capitalists, though. <laughs> no, it's really anything. If you're going to move the world, you've got to be able in less than 10 seconds to explain what you do and why they need it. So, Paul, I, one thing, I, I, you and I didn't get a chance to talk about this, and I've always wanted to ask you this question, is, is that you've kind of got this economic perspective that advances in technology creates a world of unlimited physical resources, which is kind of counterintuitive for a lot of people out there, albeit I come from a tech sector, and get exactly what you're saying. But 
talk me through a little bit of of what your view, what that view is of technology and what its role is as far as creating this unlimited resources versus kind of a some people believe there's a win loss or a zero sum game out there. Yeah, and very much the same as my regular pattern. When I was first introduced to the zero-sum game, I got upset. I was the youngest MBA in history at the time at Wharton Business School. I was 20, year old, 20 years old getting my MBA, and I walked into macroeconomics class, and they told me, welcome to macroeconomics. What is economics? Economics is the study of scarcity. There's a limited supply out there of land, in those days fuel, fresh water, and how we divide it up among ourselves, be it communism, capitalism, socialism, or any other ism, is the study of economics. And I said, whoa, I don't want to be here at Warden. I got the wrong school. The world I know, when you create something, you add value. You make more food. You make more land by building high-rises on it, where there used to be flat farms. We increase the value of everything. And this professor, who later won the Nobel Prize, by the way, for economics, is telling me that it's all about scarcity. That led me on a quest to say, you're wrong, and I wrote a book called Unlimited Wealth. Fifteen years later, it took me, I had to go through the Reagan administration, five years at, at Citibank, and teaching at NYU for almost 20 years. And finally, I think I got it right in 91 when I wrote a book whose central equation is wealth for the individual or society equals physical resources, how much land you have, how much water, how much oil, times technology, W equals PP. But for most people, they go to school, figure that get a technology, learn a degree, and W, wealth equals physical resources times technology, their T is then constant. They learn something and try to do it all their life. And that's the problem. Wealth equals physical resources times technology, but in history, technology was a constant. For most individuals who go to school, when people tell them, what are you going to be when you grow up, they pick something, they learn the technology and don't learn anything new. And I wrote this book explaining why our abundant economy is growing so fast and how we've learned how to manage technology and how W equals T times T, wealth equals physical resources times technology, but you can improve your technology in your lifetime. And when I wrote this, the book was pretty earth-shining. There were three Larry King Live TV shows. One of the first people I heard on the phone called me up directly to Sam Walton, who's now on the back cover of the book. And from that, I've written a number of books, 11 books, done a lot of different topics, but ultimately I'm probably known for wealth equals for physical resources times technology, and we as governments and we as individuals need more T, technology, not more physical resources. Well, it's a great point. I mean, it kind of feeds into one of your other uh, books, which was The Next Millionaires, where you talk about the number of millionaires doubles every decade. And you really kind of a little bit of a pushing the point that uh, how ordinary people can become one of them. Well, that's pretty much just focusing on what most people want out of any type of knowledge. Most people are sort of stuck at a stage of I need to get more money in a good way, and money is a good scorecard. And when they understand how the economy works, they think, gee, I'm going to get money not by taking it from someone else. That's tough to do. I'm going to get more money by creating value that wasn't there before. I don't want more gasoline or barrels of oil. I want to go from 20 miles a gallon to 40 miles a gallon with the same amount of oil, and I get twice the driving. And once you start to understand that you individually and your yep. society wants more technology, things fall into place. Yeah, hey, Paul, that's great. This is going to lead right into our second segment. Don't go anywhere. Stay right where you're at. I'm Phil McKinney, and you're listening to Killer Innovations.
News Talk Radio. This is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation. If you haven't figured it out yet, I'm a big Walt Disney fan. And when it comes to preparing the next generation, I just love this quote from Walt, which was, It's a mistake not to give people a chance to learn to depend on themselves while they are young. Today's topic, we're talking about education and preparing youth for the next generation for the for the competitive workplace that's out there. And we have uh, Paul Zane Pilzer on the phone with us, uh, joining us for this segment. If you've listened to the last segment, you heard a little bit about Paul's background. But what I want to concentrate in this segment, Paul, is for you to share with me and the listeners here what you're working on specifically on how to prepare the, the kids for the future, given the work that you're doing with uh, some of your new businesses. Well, that pretty much became like all my other businesses. I was an unhappy customer. I have four children that are currently in ninth, eighth, seventh, and sixth grade. My wife and I are both academics. I taught gifted students for 21 years at NYU, and I spend my life traveling around the world doing graduation speeches and keynotes all at educational institutions. So education is more than my hobby. And I had four kids. I enrolled them in public school. I tried one or two in private schools. And I got very, very frustrated. The biggest frustration I had was no audit trail. I'd like to know how my children are doing daily. It couldn't take more than 20 seconds to ask a child walking in the door who was Abraham Lincoln. And at 3 p.m. when they walk out the door, they pass by an iPad, who is Abraham Lincoln? And maybe you'd find out that they're not learning anything about Abraham Lincoln or whatever the lesson plan is. So just on knowing what was going on in schools, I got frustrated. That led me to look closer at the curriculum. And bit by bit, I realized, wow, are we in trouble or wasting our time in K-8 education, which really is the foundation of everyone's learning. But I didn't just do it to go complain. I did it to say, what can I do to fix it? And that's where I started Zaniac Learning. And Zaniac is growing. We were going to do one store a month this year, new stores. We're opening Manhattan in the next three weeks. And we'll be doing about two stores a month and should be up to ten stores a month next year. And Zaniac's the first model I've done that won't just, quote, make me more money, because I don't need to make more money. Our businesses have done well. But I have the chance to change education as we know it literally overnight in the next few years in the United States and overseas. And that's what I'm working so on. Paul, so, Paul, how, explain, to us what Zaniac, explain to us what Zaniac is. So what is it that you're doing, and why is it so different from everything else you've run across? Well, Zaniac first is killer curriculum. We build and write all our own curriculum. So the first curriculum we wrote was K-8 math, and we built a 12,000-problem math database, and we create a custom workbook and textbook for each child. We, we measure the 70 concepts in the Common Core math. We then show how your child knows before we touch them for free. We'll tell you how your child does in each concept of Common Core math, and how other children do in the state, the zip code, the country, the world. Then we press a button and print a 100-page workbook for the next six weeks for just problems for your child. Because we lose 
both both ends of the bell curve in math. So that was just our math curriculum, and we measure everything with handwriting. Students do handwriting, we scan the writing, and we deliver unbelievable reporting. So first we built vain math, that was our curriculum. Very quickly we noticed we could take a second grader right up to eighth grade math in two years or one year. And it's not that we're so good, it's how little is actually taught in elementary school math. So we started adding subjects like computer programming, 3D printing, computer-based, uh, game-based learning, even fashion design, and killer robotics. And when we added all these different courses, parents started flocking. Now, what does a Zaniac look like? It's like Disneyland for education. You walk in and you see 50 to 96 brand new silver chairs, brand new IMAX, six all glass classrooms, high ceiling, and it's hip and fun. And the kid rides by and goes, I want to go in there, Mom. And when you go in there, they teach you math, robotics, 3D printing, computer programming, and you just soar. So we found an environment that's a physical environment called a Zaniac Learning Center. We have campuses from coast to coast. And once you walk in there, you go, this is what school should be. But we don't compete with the school, because if you compete with the school in this country, you're, you're a big political mess. We teach what the school doesn't teach. We teach robotics, 3D printing, Minecraft, game-based learning. And when you're done with our courses, you're saying, Mom, I need to get back to school and learn more math, because I need more math so I can do my fashion design better, or my 3D printing, or my computer programming. And Zaniac, of course, is so much more. When we think of after-school activities from karate to soccer, they're wonderful. I have my kids enrolled in all these things, but frankly, they don't want to do a physical activity every day. They want to do something to supplement their education that they're really excited about, and that is STEM education, science, technology, engineering, and math at Zaniac. So you need to see ZaniacLearning.com on the web, or better yet, of course, walk into a Zaniac, and that's what's taking off. We control the environment. We've made a place children want to go and the only time they're unhappy is when mom comes to pick them up after the hour and a half or two hours is over and they can come every day, they can come multiple times a week and it changes their whole view of education. When we open Hey Paul, school, one of the things that I think that, that I found really interesting when you and I talked was who teaches who? Who do you, you know, you, you bring these kids well, into the teacher. adventure, running them through a curriculum, but also you also, you know, find kids that are kind of having the common, common levels or areas, but who teaches them? Um, I started when I asked my kid, why are you friends with this kid versus that kid? Why don't you become friends with Phil's kid? And they go, well, this kid taught me something. And I found that my children gravitate to become friends with people who teach them things or they teach things to. And usually that only happens on the playground. And Zaniac, the seven-year-old, masters the math concept and turns around a whiteboard in a six-room, all-glass classroom and starts writing on the whiteboard, teaching the other kid next to him. The instructors are near peers. The best real teacher for an 8-year-old is an 18-year-old. So all of our instructors are high school honor students or maybe college undergrads, and that's because they won't quit once they're high school honor students and work for us. They always want to stay a few years. And they're teaching on a very scripted model where it's measured before every class what the 8-year-old student knows, then we measure an hour and a half later what the 8-year-old student learned. And we rank the instructors by how much their children learned. And they get very excited about improving it. So the core of Zania is that the best teacher is a peer, the second or almost as good teacher is a near peer. That's a 16, 17, 18-year-old for a 6, 7, and 8-year-old. Now, you can't just throw an 18-year-old in a room and say, teach math. Everything is very scripted, follows exact lesson plans, and it's using a lot of technology. It's taught live, but
But as I'm teaching, I press a button, and there's a full screen, big screen behind me that comes on with the intro video, Then I talk about it, then I get the kids to stand up and start using the whiteboards. And so, I mean, I just find this model impressive. One of the other things you shared with me was actually getting the kids to go after and try maybe even uh, taking on uh, college entrance exams. We've got just a couple of minutes here before we, we have to wrap up. But talk a little bit about that, about getting the kids over some of the test anxieties for entrance exams. Well, our kids are kindergarten through eighth grade. So they're not applying to college. But when we talk to parents, they say, wow, I wish you could have helped out my older brother, his older brother or his older sister with the SAT exam. So what we did is we wrote a gamified SAT program, which is a lot of fun. And we're teaching it to six to eight, six to 12-year-olds. And they can use the SAT to get into John Hopkins and the advanced kid programs. But what they really do is they master the SAT as some kind of fun game to beat because they learn how to beat it on games. And we teach them vocabulary and teach them the math, and we can get them years ahead. Then when they're in high school and they should be studying and learning things in high school and growing up and going through puberty, they're not so worried about the SAT because that's something they learned back at age 7, 8, 9, 10 on a leisurely basis and had a lot of fun doing the SAT. Plus, it's killer when you see 10 Zaniac 11-year-olds walk into a big room with 1,000 high school students to take the SAT or ACT exam. We've made it fun for them years in advance and taken the pressure out. <laughs> I don't know if I could have survived. Of that uh, intimidation, having a uh, you know 11 year old sitting next to me while I was taking my uh, entrance exams back and when I was applying to college. Ultimately, ultimately, we do this at a fraction of a Princeton review, a Kaplan, or more importantly, where a public school pays. That's where we're using right. technology and we're giving great opportunities to high school honor students to teach. So, Paul, if people want to follow you and keep track of what you're doing, what's the best way for them to find you? Um, I would say my side, I'd like you to go to paulsdaypilser.com, but Wikipedia is probably the best thing because it not only includes my economic theories and things I try to put up there, which usually get taken down, it includes thousands of other people who collaborate who don't like my books or are challenged by them. So I always recommend Wikipedia is probably the best place to start to really follow somebody positive and negative in the world today. And if they want to follow, if they want to see what's going on over at Zaniac, what's the web address for Zaniac? Uh, ZaniacLearning.com, we're the only Zaniac. All you have to do is Google Zaniac, Z-A-N-I-A-C, and you'll see, and the website ZaniacLearning.com, or um, you'll be a Zaniac soon in your town. So if you're in a major city, uh, within a year now, we'll have a Zaniac. Lots of places. Perfect. Paul, thanks a lot. Really appreciate you coming in. And for listeners, I hope that uh, opened your eyes a little bit. Uh, when we come back, I've got a killer question to challenge you with. I'm Phil McKinney, and this is Killer Innovations on the BizTalk Radio Network. BizTalk Radio. This is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation. So how are you doing with the weekly creative muscle exercises? My objective is to give you challenges each week that will cause you to exercise your creativity. 
So get out your moleskin or whatever you use to capture your ideas, whether it be the Evernote app on your smartphone or tablet, the back of a napkin, a scrap piece of paper, whatever it is, and just carry it with you. And get in the habit of writing down whatever inspires you, or as you heard Paul talk about in the earlier segment, about whatever frustrates you. Because if you're frustrated, that identifies an opportunity. And as each week goes by, if you keep up exercising each week, it does become easier. I'm Phil McKinney, and you're listening to Killer Innovations. Questions are a mind hack. Your brain cannot stop from answering it. So what's the mind hack for this week? What are the unanticipated uses of my product? Again, what are the unanticipated uses of my product? Not all interesting discoveries have an obvious application. Now, if you believe you have something, but you're not sure what exactly it's going to be good at, don't give up. Many innovations languish in labs for years until they're matched to a product. Um, there's a podcast I did earlier in the year around this uh, invention that was being done in World War II to try to find an alternative to rubber. A lot of work going in because of the rubber shortages during the war. This one particular invention um, didn't really meet the qualifications to be a rubber alternative, but people thought it was interesting, and it bounced around for years until finally it ended up at a toy store, and we now know it as Silly Putty. And now Silly Putty is used for things like physical therapy, the exercising of hands after uh, some kind of accident or surgery. Other inventions that uh, you never quite truly understood what it could do, one would be Teflon. Teflon was invited in 1938, but it didn't coat really its first pan until 1954. Fast forward it, you know, another decade later, and Teflon was used on the outside of the Apollo rockets to help ensure nothing stuck to it where it didn't belong. Uh, and now we see Teflon and its application all over. So its original discovery is not how it actually was being used. Take Post-it Notes. Post-it Notes was really built on uh, using a not-so-very-good glue. In fact, a glue that would fail all, quote, normal characteristics that you would apply uh, to it. And that would include, you know, things like uh, it'd be sticky, it would stay put, um, uh, all those kinds of characteristics. But in this case, this glue, you could tack something down and you could peel it off. It wouldn't actually hold anything for a very long period of time. And it took five years at 3M to get any support for the concept or to even find a potential profitable use for it. And now I can sit here at my desk and I can see pads of Post-it notes all over the place. Um, they've become kind of the mainstay of the office environment, or at least for me as a as an innovator and a creator, I use post-it notes you know, by the boxfuls. You know, in the case of my previous role at, at, as the CTO at Hewlett Packard, HP had a breakthrough with super accurate thermometer that was created at HP Labs. This was accurate to like unbelievable accuracy. The problem was, okay, great, we invented this in a lab, and this was done way before I was there, um, back in the 60s and 70s as part of. Um, some other work that was going on, and it could measure the fluctuations in in temperatures down to, like I said, an unbelievable accuracy. But there was clearly no use for it until those thermometers were given away to oceanographers. 
And the, these thermometers were put out into buoys all over the world and collected the data and would send the data back, again, at a very good level of accuracy. So it wasn't just a single temperature. It was, I don't remember if it was four or five digits, six digits to the right, um, accuracy. What we now learn, though, is from that data, we have now the most accurate data of temperature changes in the ocean going back multiple decades. When that thermometer was first invented, nobody understood what it was going to be used for. When it was given away to some scientists to go figure it out and people started throwing them into the ocean, it actually created a wealth of data and a wealth of information at an accuracy level never before understood that allowed us to really understand what was changing um, in our oceans. So if you have an an idea that is new and interesting um, and has some unique properties, have the confidence that you will find a use for it. In some cases, you have to give it away, like the, the thermometers, or you have to make it available for other people outside of your organization to experiment with it. Um, it's, it's that kind of opening the door, because what you tend to find inside of an organization are those that really um, get locked in. So, have patience. It can take a while before those needs emerge. So the sparking points, do you have a customer who can benefit from the unanticipated use of a product? And how could you identify a potential group of such customers? Next question is, what's the most unusual way you've ever seen your product utilized? Go out there and see what customers are doing with it. And then how could you encourage others to find out about the unanticipated uses of your products? Do you give it away and let people go uh, play around and, and, and experiment? So as a reminder, this week's killer question is, what are the unauthorized uses of my product? So this week's creative muscle exercise is to identify three ways someone could use your product or service in a way you didn't anticipate, and then come up with five ways to serve the needs of those users. So get your notebook out, exercise your muscle, just set aside 15 minutes a day. Feel free to email me your homework at phil at killerinnovations.com. I'll share the best on the show, or if you mark it private, I'll just reply back to you on what I think about your idea. If you can, uh, if you feel uh, gutsy and uh, want some um, good feedback, go ahead and send them in. A um, few years back, I created a two-hour audio course on how to create innovations or how I do it. It's on Amazon, but it sells for something like nineteen dollars. That's crazy. Text if you want a free copy of it. Just text the word innovate to three three. Four four four, or if you're outside the U.S., just send an email to innovatedcarnivations.com, and I'll send you uh, an email with all the links to it. While you're at it, check out carnivations.com, and also go over and visit BizTalk Radio. Find out all the great shows over there, um, and you can also listen to the show by downloading the app. If you know an innovator has a great story, let me know. And today's show um, was engineered by Brandon, who's always the one having to keep me on track, which is a difficult task. I'm Phil McKinney, and don't let the innovation antibodies get you down. Keep on innovating. Talk to you next week.
The opinions you hear on BizTalk Radio are those of the hosts, callers, and guests, and do not necessarily reflect those of this station, BizTalk Radio, its management, or advertisers. The information on BizTalk Radio does not constitute a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any product or service. If you have any questions about BizTalk Radio, contact us at 817-274-1609 or at biztalkradio.com. BizTalk Radio. 